0: Going to continue our series on the book of Philippians that we've titled Jail and Joy. Kind of oxymoronic. I mean two things that don't go together. Jumbo shrimp. Now some of you just got that. I said, yeah. Just. <laughs> uh, and then Joy and Jail. There are two. Two concepts that you don't put together in the same sentence. But here is Paul towards the end of his life. Paul, who is called on the Damascus road, one who was a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, a leader in the Jewish faith, who was persecuting the Christians for corrupting the Jewish faith, who had been responsible for the deaths of many Christians, was on the way to Damascus to kill more to bring them to trial so that they would be killed. And here on that road, Jesus meets him and he changes his life forever. Jesus says, why are you persecuting my people? And Paul was changed. Paul uh, was sent by Christ to, to be a light to the Gentiles. And that's what he spent the rest of his life doing. Sharing the message of Christ, the gospel, with those who otherwise would not have heard it. One of the first places he went was a place called Philippi. Philippi was a microcosm of, of Rome. It was a Roman city, city uh, but it was more than that. It was a, on the road, a trade route. It was a very significant little city, uh, and it kind of represented what Rome was, including all the, the pantheon of religions and faiths. Uh, Philippi was as Roman as you could get outside of Italy. It was fully Roman, which meant that you had to worship the Caesar, Who said, Caesar is Lord. Paul confronts that in chapter 2 at the end of uh, the Kenosis passage, chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 11. At the end of that, he says, No, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. So that was his gospel. Well, he was in jail for that gospel in Rome Uh, Chances are it was a little pit with a manhole cover on it that he was laid down into, Um, not enough room for a a six-foot tall man to stand up, a curved uh, roof on it with a trough running for a latrine through it, Uh, no telling how many people were stuffed into that little cell. But here's Paul writing to his dear friends. Unlike many of other Paul's letters, this one has a note of true love for these folks. These are people that he knows people that he loves, people that he's invested in. And we'll see that very clearly here in a moment. Uh, But more than anything, he wants them to resist the temptation to conform to the pressure from from the Roman authorities to give up their faith, to compromise in any way. And he reminds them that he is suffering for his faith and that they too can suffer for their faith. And in doing that, they will experience a grace and peace that can't be imagined. Uh, It's amazing that in four small chapters, Paul, sitting in that dank, damp, smelly jail cell, mentions joy 14 times. But his joy comes, not in his circumstances, it comes from two things. His joy comes from his relationship with, with Christ. And secondly, it comes from the fruit that's being produced in the lives of the people of Philippi. He continues to say, make my joy complete. Fill me with complete joy by the way you live this out. He's saying, you know what's going to make me happier than anything in this jail cell? If you live out the gospel. So we get to chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation, and uh, you may notice there's some blue Bibles there. If you didn't bring your Bible, feel free to use one of those. It's page 709. If you're not familiar where it is, uh, you can find it there as well. But I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation this morning. Uh, This is God's Word for us today to us in the middle of our hard circumstances. Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I'm away, it's even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation by obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Do everything without complaining and arguing. I'm going to read that one again. That's in the Bible, by the way. It's not just what your mom told you. Do everything without complaining and arguing. So that no one can criticize you, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people hold firmly to the word of life then on the day of christ's return i paul will be proud that i did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless this is god's word for us today lord may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be pleasing and acceptable in your sight today we pray this in jesus name amen this is a rich rich few verses Uh, And what I'm going to do, something I don't do a lot, we're just going to break it down phrase by phrase, verse by verse, and kind of explore it, uh, trying to really get to understand what Paul is saying here. It starts off with that opening, dear friends, uh, and some of your translations it may say beloved or loved ones. These are people that Paul truly loves. He's had a relationship with them. He has invested in them. He has discipled them. He uh, led them to Christ. This was his baby. He absolutely loves them. And they love him too. You can tell by the tone of this letter that there is an intimate relationship with these people. You may have had a job years ago that you still keep in contact with those folks. Maybe it's classmates. You know, with Facebook these days, uh, you know... It's, it's hard to see when your classmates are turning 39 and 40, uh, because that means that you're going to turn 39 and 40. Uh, but it's so nice to be able to, to keep contact with them. And the bad thing about Facebook is that you can stalk people from afar. You can have casual relationship with them. You can know everything that's going on in their life without actually knowing them, right? Uh, it's those people that you actually talk to are in relationship with, not just friends on Facebook, that you've invested in, that are investing in you, that you spend time together, that you break bread together, that you share life with. These are the kinds of people that Paul shared life with. He loved them, and he calls them beloved, dear ones, friends. And then he, you know, I had a teacher who always told us we were better than we actually were. You guys are great students. And I know she went home saying, these guys are going to fail everything. But we never heard that out of her mouth. Never once. She said, you guys are going to ace this. When it came to AP exams, when it came to, to the, the end of the year exams, the standardized tests, she, she would always say, you guys are going to do well on this. And you know, I think she figured out something. She figured out if she kind of spoke a little higher of us, we may actually attain that. Uh, but if we never, if also we heard was that we were lousy students, we were the worst students ever to walk through that school, how in the world did she get blessed to have us in her class, um, you know, we never ever heard that. And we lived up to the expectations she had for us. So here's Paul with what they call, maybe a self-fulfilling prophecy, I don't know. Or maybe it's the absolute reality. He says this, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And the New Living Translation does a good job of softening that for us. It's actually the word obeyed. You obeyed when I was with you. We don't like that word, do we? We like it when we are the one to be obeyed. We don't like it when we're the one that has to obey. When's the last time your supervisor at work said, you better obey me? We don't use that word anymore, do we? The only time we use it is with our kids because we think kids can handle that word. Once we reach 16, we don't can't handle that word anymore. Nobody's going to make me obey nobody. I'm not going to do that. No, can't tell me to do anything. I'm my own person. you am going to make me obey. I'm not going to obey. Paul says... When I was with you, you always obeyed. Now, the question in what the text leaves us ambiguous in the New Living Translation is, has chosen to go this way because you've got to go one way or the other. Uh, who is, are they obeying? Uh, many would say that they're obeying Paul. He's saying, that I know you always obeyed me when I was there. And others would say, no, it's not Paul they're obeying, it's God. And then others would say, well, if they're obeying Paul, guess who they're obeying? They're obeying God. Do you know that there are people in your life spiritually who need to be mentors to such a degree that you obey them? There are. You need to have someone in your life who spiritually you obey. And for these, for Paul, these people were, were those folks. Paul was that for these folks. He was their mentor. They obeyed his instructions, the instructions that came from, from God, from the words of, words of Christ. They obeyed him. And he's saying, you always have followed my instructions. You always obeyed me when I was with you. And now even more, or it's more important that you do because I am not with you. There is one parenting style You may have heard it, it's called the helicopter parent. Those are the parents who never let their kids grow up. They hover around them, they never let them fall, never let them bump their heads, never let them skin their knees, never let them fail at anything, always bail them out. It's always the teacher's fault. It's always the principal's fault. It's always the neighbor's fault. It's never our kids' fault. They're just hovering around, making sure that their, their kids are in this little, little tiny bubble, protective bubble. Well, you know what that produces? Self-absorbed, egotistical brats who grow up to be self-absorbed, egotistical adults. who've never learned how to do it on their own, who've never learned responsibility, who've never learned to to make a decision for themselves, who've never learned life as a kid, and we throw them off to college, and wow, the decisions they make because they've never had to make a decision before in their life because a helicopter has always made it for them. This is coming from parents who homeschool. We love teaching our kids. We love being involved in the life of our kids, but we also understand that they need to make their own choices. They need to learn to grow. Now, we, we let them make small choices. What color pants are you going to wear, red or green? But it teaches them how to make a choice, doesn't it? Sometimes the church can be helicopter disciple makers. It was interesting, if you're familiar with Bill Hybels, uh, one of the most influential pastors in our nation over the past 25 years, founded uh, Willow Creek Church and the Willow Creek Association, a church that meets th- that thousands meet on their campus on a weekend, 25, 30,000 meet out there on a weekend. So many people, have been; their lives have been utterly changed because of their, their message. They did a survey a few years ago, and it was an honest survey. They actually hired a company to do this uh, so, they would be completely unbiased. And the, one of the questions they ask is, How satisfied are you with the church? And one thing they realized was if you were a brand new Christian, you were super satisfied with the church. You love the church. If you were a, a growing, maturing Christian, you love the church. But if you were a mature disciple of Christ, the numbers were three, fours, and fives instead of eight, nines, and tens. And they begin to wonder, what in the world is going on here? And they realize they created programs that bottle-fed Christians for years. Nobody ever had to to make their own discipleship plan. It was always given to them. Nobody ever had to decide uh, decisions to make because, you know, it was always done in this bubble. I think it's great to have the community. We need the community. But we also need to learn how to stand up on our own. We need to be able to make a decision to follow Christ that's ours. We need to be able to to be in the Word, not because somebody says we have to be in the Word, but because we are making the decision to be in the Word. We have to be in the community here at our worship gatherings, not because somebody's going to make us feel guilty because we don't show up, but because we know that for our spiritual well-being, we need to be here and for the spiritual well-being of those who are going to be gathered, who may learn something from me, I need to be here. We need to learn to stretch and to grow and to stretch our, our, our faith legs. And Paul says, you obeyed me when I was with you, and you need to obey me even more. Follow those instructions on your own because I'm not there anymore. I'm not there to wake you up and get you out of bed anymore. I'm not there to prepare your bottle anymore. I'm not there to change your diapers anymore. Live your life in Christ there without me. So much more important for them to learn how to live life without Paul, to be disciples. And then he says this, work hard to show the results of your salvation. Some of your translations may say, work out your own salvation. We hear that, and what do we hear? You can't earn your salvation. We don't earn our salvation. We no, we don't, and that's not what Paul's saying here. If you understand the, uh, the work there, in the Greek, it's a passive word. It means that you didn't do the action, but you're working out the results of that action. For example... If I came to you, Matt Litz, and said, here is $3 million, you didn't earn it, you didn't go out and get it, I just gave it to you, whose responsibility for giving it to you is it? It's completely mine, right? Whose responsibility is it then to spend it and to figure out what to do with $3 million? It's yours. To work out our salvation means that we've been given this amazing gift of salvation. Now, Paul says, Let's figure it out. What's this mean for you? Work it out. It's like couples who've been married or got married. Been there? You have this ideal of marriage and the pastor says, will you? And you say, I will. And then you go off and you're married. You have the same name now. And then all of a sudden you have to figure out what it means to do life together. (laughs) You have to work hard to do that, don't you? For those of you who've been married more than five years, more than one year, More than three months, you know it takes work to figure out how to live this married life together, doesn't it? And it's not just work, but it's the kind of understanding of, of work diligently to do this. Paul's saying this is the most important job you have: is to figure out what it means to be saved. What's that mean for you in your your life, your choices, the ethics? What's that like in your home? How's your life, an example of a life that's been saved, how is your workspace, where you work, being worked out? The salvation, how's your salvation being worked out there? How's your salvation being worked out at Walmart? Let me try this. How's your salvation being worked out when the server this afternoon brings you the exact wrong dish? How is your salvation being worked out there? How are you living that out? And you you know, that's an awesome, amazing task, isn't it? It's so awesome that Paul says it has to be done. How? I think King James says, Fear and trembling. With fear, that that word in the the Greek is, you'd recognize it, phobos, which we get phobias from. Fear. That's what it means. But it's not simply fear, it's fear out of not being scared of something, but being awed by it. My dad was an electrician by trade before he became a pastor. So my job, he he still continued to do that a lot, volunteer basis, wired tons of churches. Half the buildings at the campground were wired by my dad, and I think two-thirds of the outlet covers were screwed on by me. That was my job, was to hold the ladder and then to, to screw the outlet covers on. And there came a point, though, where he said, you can actually install the outlet, the actual plug. But the first thing he said... Every time was what? Is your power off? Yeah, it's off. Of course, it's off. It only takes one time, right, Robin? Hopefully, one time. <laughs> Hopefully, to get to the point where you always make sure that the power's off, right? A little current going through you will really wake you up, will give you an awe and reverence for electricity, won't it? But uh, you've got to do a slip of switch. We've tamed electricity. No, we haven't. We haven't. We've just buffered it a little bit. It's still an amazing power, isn't it? And for us to unlock that, to let it loose, means we, we can't handle it. It's Isaiah all over again. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Reverence and fear. The second word is actually trembling, (laughs) shaking. Shaking in your boots. Because you realize this is an awesome task that we've been given. I've been given the most amazing gift ever. Now, how do I live this out? What do I do with it? I don't want to screw this up. I don't know about you, but for me, this this can catch... My family is counting on me to to be a good example. My church is counting on me to live the life I need to live. That's an overwhelming task to figure this out. But he doesn't leave us there. He says, while you're working this out, just remember that if you let him, God will continually be working in you. In English, it's the same word, work, work, right? In Greek, it's two different words. This time, instead of it being passive, God does the work, and we are responsible for uh, the after effects. This is God doing it. God's doing it now in the present. God is working in you. Do you know God's working in you right now? God wants to do something in your life now. God wants to lead you in a certain direction. God wants to a change an aspect of your life because it's not honoring Him or He can't use you like you are. God is working in you at this moment, but He can't make you. That's why Paul says, you have the responsibility of working out what God's doing in your life. God's going to work in your life, but you have a responsibility then to live it out. But the amazing thing about the Holy Spirit in our lives is that if we give complete control over the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will guide us, will lead us. I love that hymn, He leadeth me, He leadeth me. And if we allow God to do that, He will. But one thing we have to do at that point is to let go of our egos. We have to do what He said in verses 1 through 11 to follow the example of Christ to have, our same mind that was in, have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus, who gave up everything to serve us. If you want to allow God to truly work in you, get off your own throne and allow God to get there. But he doesn't just leave us hanging. That's kind of uh, ethereal, isn't it? Kind of abstract. The, this is how you live it out. You're supposed to go live out the gospel. Don't you love it when pastors tell you, go live out the gospel, but don't tell you how? In seminary, the best sermons we preach were ones that you had to figure out on yourself yourself, because us seminary geeks, we like to do that. Uh, But I realized that we need some help. I need some help. Paul, tell me what I need to do here. Of all the things he chooses to live out, as an example of the way we live out what God's doing in our lives, in fear and trembling, of all the different behaviors and attitudes and things we could do, he chooses this: do everything—not do church, do work, do home, do mowing the grass, do watching the game. Do at night before you go to bed with your spouse, do what you want without grumbling and complaining, right? Do all, everything, and that's what he means there. You mean I can't complain anymore? Well, what Paul says is, yeah, do everything without complaining and arguing. Complaining is that grumbling. You work with them, don't you? The complainer. I can't believe we had to come in this early. I can't believe they're asking us to do this. I can't believe they're doing this now. How can they expect us to do my job? I can't do this, and they can't do that, and you can't do that. And my desk doesn't fit anymore. My drawer's stuck, and where are my staples? Who stole my staples? It's a great VeggieTale song about that, by the way. Just came out. Uh, It's it's really, really good. Uh, Where are all the staples gone? Uh, We live in a society where it's our fundamental right to complain. Every business has a complaint department because we have the right to complain. Because I didn't get it my way. I didn't get what I expected, so I have the right to complain. And Paul says, do everything without What it say there? Complaining. Does that mean you have to agree with everything that goes on in the world? No. But do you have as a Christian have the right then to just complain about it? gossip about it, whine about it. No. If there's something you don't agree with, guess what? Go talk to to the person. I can't do that. That's not polite. It's Christian. If you have an issue with someone, go talk to them. Don't complain about it. But first, check your motive for complaining. Why are you complaining? Because I didn't get my way. Why is it so important that you have your way? Why do you have to have your way? Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. We complain because we're self centered, we complain because we're selfish. We complain because we expect everybody else to meet our expectations of them when we don't give them a break. We don't offer them grace. We complain because we're sitting on the throne of our lives. We complain. And we argue. We debate. The word there is what the where we, kind of, we have the word dialogue from. It means two people discussing, but the context here is more than just discussing. It's bickering. How many of you have kids? More than one? You understand this word. How many of you were a kid? How many of you had a sibling? You understand this word, bickering, mama. Noah, stop. No, Noah. If I could count how many times we hear that that phrase, no, Noah. And then, Isabel, you all... And, you know, it drives me crazy. It's the one thing that can just drive, go make me insane. I understand my, my dad's reactions now. I understand my dad better because he was grumpy when he came home and it wasn't because of his long day at work. It wasn't because of the stress of life. It was grumpy because he came into a house where kids were arguing and bickering all the time. And he's like, where's my happy home? Paul says the worst witness to Christ in your life is bickering and complaining. How quick are you to complain? How quick are you to argue because you don't get your way? do everything without that you want to know how you want to work you're going to work out your own salvation you know how you're going to respond to God working in you with fear and trembling how you're going to approach this awesome task we've been given of living out this saved life you know how you're going to do that you're going to do it without complaining and arguing you're going to be different from everybody else around you and say you know we don't do that in our house that's not who we are And we as a church say, we don't do that in our church. That's not who we are. Because we're living out our salvation in fear and trembling because God is working in us. So we're not going to complain and we're not going to argue. And once again, does that mean we never get anything done, we never move forward? No. But in a few weeks, I'm going to talk about healthy ways to defuse conflict because there is going to be conflict. We're not going to agree with everything, but there's a way to do it that still gives the other person respect and still speaks to the gospel. Do everything without complaining and arguing, and then you know what? It can only be done through Philippians 2, 3 3 through 5. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others, once again, as better than yourselves. Don't look out out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others' To, in other words, you have to have the same attitude that Christ had, who gave up everything to serve us. When you have that attitude, that attitude that's been changed because you realize what an amazing gift that you've been given in, in your faith, in your salvation, and you have an awesome responsibility of living that out, then guess what? You're not the most important person in the world anymore. Realize that there are others, actually, others are more important than you. I was a little, you know, too 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 young for this, but many of you remember the, the moon landings. Anybody remember those? The moon landings, George. You know, when they we went to the moon and then we landed on it. Rockets. You remember that, don't you? Okay, I don't. I was too old. I mean, I'm too old. I'm too young for that. I'm too. Uh, I'm too, yeah. But hold on. I'll get to that in a second. I want to go hit verses 15 and 16 here, especially verse 15 here for a second. It's amazing... How Paul? How much weight put Paul? Paul puts on that. That don't criticize. I mean, don't. Don't grumble and don't complain. He says if you just live a life of not grumbling and complaining, who's going to criticize you? He says you'll be living a blameless life. Not because you just never grumble or complain, but because you're living a life of it that creates an attitude where it's not okay to grumble and complain anymore and argue. He says that you can live blameless, so no one can criticize you, pure or clean and innocent lives, and you do that because you're reflecting God. You are the children of God. Did you ever get in trouble as a kid because you're a Johnson and Johnsons don't do that? I grew up in a very small town, and my car was a 1980 lemon yellow Ford Fiesta. We called it the lemon. A friend of mine actually just picked it up and put it on the lawn of the school one time. I realized I could do nothing in that town because word would get back to my dad, and I was scared of my dad. Fear and trembling, I didn't want to make my dad upset. <laughs> Love my dad to death. He's, he's the guy I think about when it comes to awe and reverence. Uh... But I knew that I had his name. And if I messed up his name in the town, uh, there was going to be a price to that. You're the children of God. Saying, so live it out, reflect him, reflect him. And like I was saying, the, the moon landings. Uh, there were several guys who actually got to live on the moon for a while. That's a cool camping trip. Uh, They got to do that. And uh, there's a documentary that was out from, from the shadow of the moon. It just has some of their reflections on what that made them think about God being on the moon. Was once you've been to the moon once you've seen the sun reflecting off the moon, once you've been there that close, everything else seems kind of insignificant. Paul says, you're children of God. You've been saved. You're continuing to work this out. You're not grumbling. You're not complaining. You're reflecting the very nature of God. Because once you've been in a relationship with God, once you've experienced God at that level, everything else, the pettiness of life, the things that produce squabbles, the things that we complain about, the things that get under our skin, don't seem to be that important anymore. Shine like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Be different. Reflect the face of Christ. We don't have time to complain and argue. We have more important duty to do. In verse 16, hold firmly to the word of life. This can be equally translated as hold out the word of life and I kind of agree with that translation because it follows in, the, in the, the theme of it. You're supposed to be children of God who shine like bright stars in a crooked and perverse world. And by you living out your life the way you are, by you working out your own salvation, by you allowing God to work in your life, by you living a life that doesn't complain, doesn't bicker, doesn't argue, that doesn't fall into the trap of me, 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 then you are holding out the word of life for others to see. How are you doing at working out your own salvation? Is that something that's just a a task that, uh, well, I'm okay. Or is that the most important job you have? Do you understand it comes from the God of Isaiah? That task, that overwhelming task. I can tell you, though, if you allow the Holy Spirit to do the work that he wants to do in your life, grumbling and complaining will be a thing in the past of your life. You can live a life that's different. God's not going to force you. It's your choice be you letting I want you to, to bow your heads where you are. I know for some of you that was like thats that's cool Matt I, that was that was good. Glad I could hear that, but for some of you today, the Holy Spirit is working on you. maybe for some of you you've had that grumbling and complaining and arguing spirit because In reality, you're the one that's most important. I'd love to give you the opportunity to to work out your salvation a little bit today. To work that out a little bit more by allowing God to work in you. I want to pray for you. And as I pray, I'm going to ask that you pray. That you ask God to do the work that he needs to do in your life. That he allows you to, to, to leave this place differently than you walked in that your attitude will be different, that you would be truly more Christ-like after today. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for your grace that doesn't leave us stranded, but that walks with us. Lord, it's an awesome responsibility of living out this life of salvation. Responsibility to to follow your commands. I have a responsibility to, to share my life with others, to influence others for you. I have a just an awesome responsibility, and I don't know how to do it. Lord, thank you for for if if I allow you, for for leading me, for working in me. Lord, forgiving for my attitudes. My complaining unsatisfied attitude, my combative attitude, my selfish attitude. Lord, help me to to live a life that's blameless, that's pure, that's innocent. Help me represent you as your child in such a way that I'm a shining light in a dark world. For my prayer is that our church would be different because of today, that we would be in one accord and that any arguing and complaining and gossip and backstabbing that there may be here would be a thing of the past, because that's not who we are, because that's not who you are, realizing that the worst effect on our witness that could ever be is when we complain and we argue with one another. And the world says if they can't get along with each other, how are they going to change the world? Help us to live reflecting your light. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.